Kia ora, hello and welcome to Liberty Now, the show for discerning minds and common sense. We seek the truth and can think for ourselves. I'm your host, John Verd. Thank you for stopping by. I'll be here looking at the headlines, asking questions, and talking to people who are taking action every Saturday at 10 p.m. Uh, last episode, I spoke with Brendan Malone of LifeNet New Zealand about free speech, uh, both the political and religious implications of that. And the title of this episode I'd like to call, What is Hate Speech? Continuing the conversation about freedom of speech and talking with Dale Stevens, business consultant, former detective, recent candidate for national in the general election, and all-around machine. I don't think I've ever met a more disciplined, determined human being, except possibly your wife, Dale. Yeah, yeah, sure for that. <laughs> but uh, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me on. Um, uh, and an interesting topic, too. Very current, as they say. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I like to sort of explore behind the headlines. You know, there there seems to be one main narrative in the media. I don't know if you agree or or would have seen that yourself, but it, it seems that it's becoming more and more left and liberal and anything uh, to the right of that tends to be squashed. Anyway, I wanted to uh, just learn a little bit more about you. One thing that I, I wanted to, I don't know if you can talk about this, but you told me once you had interviewed a very notorious criminal. Can you tell that story? Well, to be fair, I've interviewed quite a lot in my uh, in my police career. I guess if I remember rightly, the one that we were talking about, um, uh, I actually interviewed him, arrested him, and he's the only guy I've ever arrested where his fingers were too big for the fingerprint form. He was a giant of a man. Um, he ended up uh, getting a bit of uh, a name, um, and I won't repeat it on air because it's quite, it brings back bad memories for some uh, victims uh, of the yeah, crime. Okay. But what I did find out um, subsequent to that, um, he was a big, big Māori fella. And I discovered about three months after I arrested him, he's actually my first cousin. Um, and oh I, never, I never knew about it. And he went to jail for a string of quite notorious crimes. Um, he's, he's no longer in prison. He's rehabilitated. But it was just, it reminded me that uh, we all have, um, I guess, people and the situations in our own backgrounds and sometimes if we get too judgmental, uh, we just got to be careful because actually it can come back and bite you. And, and I was quite judgmental of this guy. Um, then when I realised his family, it, it gave me a different view or a different idea of how I should have viewed that situation. And yeah. so it's a reminder to all of us, hey, we don't know what's around the corner. We don't. I, I had been thinking about a, um, a serial killer in the in the u.s ah, yes yes that's true I, my master's thesis was in um uh, for i did a master's of public policy my thesis was on um serial killers with a view to whether we should set up a serial invest serial crimes investigation unit in new zealand so i spent time uh at the fbi at quantico i spent time at uh, new scotland yard uh, and i also spent time at liverpool university in the uk looking at the various different serial killer methodologies in use around the world. And uh, as part of that, I got to interview uh, once again uh, a notorious criminal um, who had been responsible for 34, I think it was, deaths in California in the late 70s and was on death row. 
And so, yeah, quite amazing. Um, this is a particularly interesting individual uh, because he had a very, very high IQ. And yeah. so um, he had a different psyche to why he was committing those crimes. So, yeah, once again, you just don't know. You know, you yeah. can't, can't put people in a box. No, they're, you, they're you can't. That, that brings up a, a very key point. We are basically projectors, right? Uh, you know, it's basic psychology 101. You know, we, we tend to project our feelings onto others. And so when we talk and when I talk about the idea of a new world order, and I don't know if you agree with that or if you've been sort of tracking the, the whole idea of the, the great reset that we've been hearing about mm-hmm. and, and other things. But I, I do believe there's a, a very strong push and ha- a plan has been in motion for decades, um, probably more than a century, actually, to create a, a single world government. The, the things that are being pushed seem incredibly criminal and you know, most people don't believe that that's possible, but it, it's true that there are people with very high IQs and very high up in, in positions of power that um, don't necessarily always have our best interests at heart. No, but once again, they have interests at heart that they think are right. Right. You know, and it's, it's like our own political system here in New Zealand. People go into parliament uh, pretty much with the same objectives, a better country, a better New Zealand. They have, to have a, a different set of ideas about how to get there. And I guess that's where the friction is. And you talked about you seeing things from your own heart. That you, that's our media to a T. It's very hard in New Zealand for media to be impartial. Right. It's a small country. Everybody knows everybody. Um, and so generally when the media say something, it will come from uh, a view of the world, not necessarily about securing the information, but about having an opinion about that information. And that's the right. problem here. Right. Tell me a little more about uh, your background and why you decided to run for national. Yeah, I was uh, born and raised in Christchurch, um, spent all my schooling at St Andrews College, uh, joined the police at 17, had a a really great career in the police, uh, pretty much all of investigating serious crime. Uh, I did a bunch of degrees while I was in the police. Uh, I left and went into the commercial world. I took up senior management roles in the private sector, uh, back in the public sector, I've worked offshore. I've been a CEO both in New Zealand and in Australia. Um, in Australia, ran a multinational IT company. Um, but I've always believed in the values of the National Party around uh, individual choice and freedom, about strong families, uh, about working for success, uh, about uh, I don't believe in a handout, I believe in a hand up. I'd rather be given the tools to achieve something rather than just sit there and be given stuff. I'd rather make my own way in the world. And so that's where my values sit very strongly with national. Now, people say, oh, but you went to St Andrews College, you had a silver spoon. (laughs) Completely wrong. Um, My parents broke up when I was seven. Uh, When I got to the age of 13, mum said you couldn't afford the school fees. Uh, So I was to go to another school. But I went and saw the headmaster. I um, arranged or negotiated a discount on my fees and time to pay. Uh, I got a job pushing a milk van or milk um, trolley around the central city at three o'clock in the morning and making concrete products in a concrete factory in the weekends, paid my school fees. A so, born um, entrepreneur. <laughs> so, wow. but, but that was really good because that taught me the value of you don't do, you don't get. Yeah. And so very happy to go and do the mahi and get the treats. I wholeheartedly agree with you, Dale. Um, you know, one of my favorite sayings is, you know, it's better to teach a man how to fish than give a man a fish. Yeah, And absolutely. Um, it seems like a lot of those in power and in, in politics right now 
are pushing for the opposite. They, they don't seem to feel that people are capable of supporting themselves. And we see, I have seen this, this huge push towards more welfare. We're now looking at a universal basic income being proposed and uh, pushed mm -hmm. by politicians. I think they're, they've started it in California. It's being proposed all over the world. And um, I don't think that's very empowering. How would you feel if you were a, uh, a civil servant, a public servant, uh, a police officer, an ambulance driver, a nurse, um, a policy analyst, and you get told yesterday that you're not going to get a pay rise for three years? Now we've got a situation where the government will probably be releasing in its budget next week or the week after um, a raise in benefits for the unemployed. At the same time, they've cancelled the potential for pay rises for those who are working. Right. To me, and that's a real dichotomy of motivation. It's really interesting. Like, it, it seems to me the people that are proposing this kind of legislation must have failed basic high school math because I don't know how they propose to pay for it. Where you, when you have more people, you know, in the cart than are pulling the cart economically, if you're mm -hmm. not creating more jobs and stimulus to create more employment, all this money is has to come from somewhere that's taxes. I don't know where else they're going to get the money from. Exactly. And um, you may not be aware of this, but um, they yesterday, Grant Robertson, Minister of Finance, was asked, so if you're going to not do any pay rises for the public sector for three years, how much revenue is that going to generate to pay bills? He hadn't costed it. He didn't know the answer because he hasn't yet costed it. Well, so why would you go, <laughs> no. So why would you go and put something like that, which is, you know, to be frank, it's causing a lot of consternation and knowing that it's causing this raru raru, this, this problem for a lot of people, you'd yeah. think they would have covered that off and understood what that meant, but they haven't done the costume. Yeah. You know, that's, would, you go and buy, would you go and buy a house without knowing if you could afford a mortgage? Right. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting, little side note about that. Back in uh, 2004, when the real estate market started going really crazy back in the U.S., there was a lot of irresponsible behavior and it was being pushed by the, the big, big mega banks were, it was sort of trickling down to um, the behavior of, of smaller banks and brokers and lending institutions. But they, they, I, as a new homeowner or uh, someone, you know, looking for a new home, uh, knew what I could afford for a payment. And, you know, I knew something about, you know, how the mortgages worked and the terms. Mm. And I was being shown these homes that I knew that I would barely be able to afford and had no, um, you know, no contingency for any change in interest rates or anything like that. Yeah. And so yeah. I, it was basically me telling the broker what I could afford. They're like, oh, we can put you into this house. We can get this approved. No problem. Yeah. And I'm yeah. like, I, not a good idea. But too many people would just look, you know, at these as these people as the authority and just go ahead and get themselves into massive mm -hmm. debt. And, you know, and some have ended up homeless. A lot of this just comes down to responsibility. The, the more the government does this enabling behavior, you know, giving handouts or, you know, telling people that they can afford more than they can, um, you know, I think that just weakens society. That's right. I couldn't agree with you more. If you're just tuning in, this is John Verd on Liberty Now on air, 96.9 Plains FM in Christchurch. Please be sure to subscribe on iTunes at Liberty Now on air 
And you can get the links, files, and show notes for this episode at libertynow.com. Dale, I, I really feel like I would uh, be very supportive of your platforms. Are you going to run again? I don't think I'll stop running, John, to be fair. There you go. <laughs> uh, um, I uh, still have my campaign car with all its livery on it. Um, I'm heavily involved in the electorate. I'm heavily involved with our caucus. Uh, heavily involved with some of the policy work. Um, I, I committed to um, at least running twice. Uh, and in a, an electorate that has been a, a Labour electorate for all but two terms uh, in, in its history, I, I knew it was going to be a big ask. And so I committed to running twice. And so I'm still campaigning. Excellent. How is the campaign going thus far? Uh, look, really positive. Um, and yep. Um, I made a comment the other day, which I believe will, will ring true, uh, and that is that um, at the moment, National is uh, considered to be a bit of a cot case, and we deserve that because we did some dumb stuff during the election. Okay. Uh, people panicking over their, um, their, their career in politics, etc. So I don't need to relitigate that. But I think you'll find that what will happen, especially uh, this year, and it's going to get worse, is that the government will continue to not perform and uh, I made the comment that we don't need to come out and win the next election. We need to come out and prove that we are capable, credible alternative, and this government will fall over on its own accord because it's, it's not able to deliver. But you know, themselves. Well, the classic example, you know, um, they announced last week this massive change to the health system. Right, yeah. And, and so the answer to that is, well, they didn't deliver housing reform. They haven't delivered Kiwi Build. They didn't deliver light rail. Um, uh, child poverty stats have got worse. So given all those failures, what makes you think or have confidence that they're going to deliver the health reforms? Right. What would you like people to hear about? Like, what are your main platforms? For me, I think when we look at policy issues that affect people, um, so, so use use health as an example. Last week, it was all about the structure of our health system. Right, John. When you go to the doctor or you have a need, do you care if it's a DHB or a Crown Health Enterprise or an independent authority, or you just want to get a good outcome? Just a good outcome. Absolutely. And so, so the focus shouldn't be on the structure. The focus should be on delivering the best possible outcome for the people of this country whatever colour. right? And so if, if we've got district health boards that don't understand their demographics and don't deliver the right services to their public, then hold them accountable for that. Don't just rearrange the deck chairs. Focus on the outcomes for the, the people that need good health services. If we did that, I think you'd find that the structure would become secondary to getting those services to the front line. Do you, do you have any proposed legislation to help fix that? Or Yeah, um, I look at everything uh, from two lenses. The first one is, what does it mean for the people in Christchurch? And the second one is, how is that going to work for the country? And so when I look at what, uh, what we need here in Christchurch, um, we've got a, a city that's got infrastructure that's got to get up and running. It's not going at pace. Uh, we need to get people back into the city. That's not happening fast enough. Uh, we've got um, housing is a growing issue, social housing issues. We've got to look after our people. We've got to make sure the hospital's operating. We've got a new CEO in there now. 
and now he's got an unknown structure that he's got to work with, an unknown budget bid that he hasn't had approved or otherwise yet. So, you know, health outcomes are really important. Education for our kids is really important. So are we delivering the right services for our schools? For all our people uh, who are less privileged in society, are they getting the right opportunities? My personal view, I think we have too many social service providers, all, all well-meaning, yes. but they're all trying to get a piece, a small, ever-decreasing piece of the pie with which right. to deliver those social services. So I'd like to see us work to consolidate and bring natural clusters of social services together and, once again, based on delivering the best outcome for our people in Christchurch. Right. And and surely that and that's whether that's health, that's education, it's our roading, it's getting, you know, cycleways are a mess. And I'm a cyclist. You know, I think yeah. cycleways yeah. are a great idea. But, but when they stuff up the traffic as well, you know, there's there's got to be better ways of doing what's currently being done. And so what what I think about in terms of Christchurch is what's the people. Mm-hmm. creating an environment that's good for our people. And um, I, got, I use this line, um, gardens for carbon. What yeah. can we do about our greenery in the city and about our, um, our open spaces and our red zones that are, are currently not being used right. to turn them into carbon uh, relief zones that are also good for the city and good for the wellness and the psyche of our people? Because, you know, John, we both live in a city that's been through terrible times. Yeah. And I don't like thinking back to those terrible times because that puts you into a negative mindset. Unfortunately, we have a lot of people in that negative mindset. So what we need to be doing instead of looking forward, being aspirational, getting opportunities, social spaces, green spaces, commercial spaces, retail spaces that are good for our people that get them out and get them about and get them involved in, in our communities. So that's the aspiration I've got for the city. Yeah. So it sounds like there's sort of a two-pronged attack, um, you know, best use of existing resources. And on the other side, um, maybe increasing the size of the pie. Sometimes it's not about growing the economy. Sometimes it's about actually freeing up the money that's already washing around in the economy to do better things. And so one of the things that I think is a real issue is raising, you know, rising house prices. And so as house prices go up, as mortgages go up, you're taking a greater chunk out of mum and dad, homeowner, that they've got less to do other things with their money because it's going into their house or whatever it might be. And so one of the ways to get a better control over housing is to free up land. And Christchurch is the shining example. If you look at the um, house prices in Canterbury, when the land was freed up post-earthquake, it, it, it created building opportunities, but it also kept the, the house prices down at a realistic level. Now, even though house prices are going up now, they are still one whole tier below the rest of the country. And so if we, we use that to replicate that uh, across other areas in New Zealand and free up council land, government land, um, unused land, and get that available for housing, then all of a sudden you'd find that because there's more stock and more available for purchase, the competition to get into the house isn't as fierce, so the prices don't jump as fast. Right. So sometimes it's not necessarily about growing the economy. It's actually about being smarter in the economy. Yeah. On other topics, you know, with I guess this would be more of a, a social issue. You know, I'm sure you're well aware of the uh, proposed hate speech law 
And um, what I see is very unbalanced punishment when you compare it to, you know, other offenses, like even physical assault and battery. Um, mm. And it's, it seems to be an extension of like the next step from political correctness, where we um, mm. move from self-censorship to more uh, censorship using the force of law. Yeah. Where, where do you see this going and, and where do you stand on that? Most people who uh, read my bio but have not ever met me or spoken to me think, ah, oh, he's a cop or an ex-cop. He'll think on the side of law and order. Uh, when I was campaigning last year, um, I was amazed at a number of people who thought that I would be in favour of uh, leaving cannabis as a criminal offence because I want people locked up and taken off the street. And I advocated, I advocated actually it's a health issue. Um, right. and it's a waste of police time to be arresting users of cannabis. But I didn't want a law change. I wanted the health issue to come forward and deal with it that way. I see the same thing here. I don't, um, you know, there's United Nations um, uh, document that came out in 2019 with a, a quite long definition of what hate speech is. Yeah. Um, then it suggested that governments should band together and create legislation to outlaw hate speech. While I agree with um, the need for um, uh, the ability to arrest people or to charge them or get them out of um, circulation if they are you know, actively promoting hate speech, I think a better way is to deal with uh, the educational side of it and encourage um, people not to use hate speech. And that sounds quite simplistic, but... Um, you know, I know that you've uh, used quotes before about, you know, freedom of speech. Here's one that I quite like. Freedom of speech does not protect you from the consequences of saying stupid stuff. Right. So uh, it's not, the quote isn't stuff. I just thought I'd be sensitive if I said the real word. Yes. Um, but free, it's like you may have a law that says you can, can do this and that, and you are protected because if, if, if someone infringes on your rights, they will be arrested. That doesn't stop them from doing it. So it doesn't stop you from being a victim. So sometimes you have to think, even though the law says I'm protected, actually, I've got to protect myself because the law doesn't necessarily protect me until it's too late. You know, so the, the, the law is generally the ambulance in the bottom of the cliff. And so there's a whole lot of interventions that need to take place before that. And I just, the way I see it is we spend too much time in a negative spiral about things affecting us as society, and one of them being hate speech. Yeah. Um, I believe that you should have the right to say what you need to say in an open and free democracy. Uh, and yeah. I don't know yeah. if, um, I don't know if you caught the irony of this a couple of weeks back when David Seymour announced that he was going to launch a, uh, a tour around the country to debate the hate speech um, bill that was being put forward by the government. And the Prime Minister came on the radio and said, I don't think he should be going around and, and having those discussions because uh, we haven't decided if we're going to put it forward yet. So she was trying to stop him from having freedom of speech. Right, right. So, ironic. You know, so I absolutely agree that we must have freedom of speech. We must be able to debate, but we've also got to encourage our people to know where to draw, draw the line. I don't mean to be insensitive, but I, I think that uh, society, many in society have become excessively sensitive and believe that they, um, 
nobody can say anything to them that, that might potentially offend them. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I uh, quoted George Orwell last episode. If liberty means anything at all, it means the right to say things to people that they do not want to hear. Uh, yeah, exactly right. You know, we, we get to a point where who decides what is hateful, you know, um, and I, I think it's a, it's a dangerous path. Um, it, I just, it's one of those things that concerns me. Well, the truth of the matter, John, is that um, it's not the police that decide these situations. Ultimately, it's up to the courts and the judges, right? And right. so they interpret the law and they hand down punishments accordingly. Unfortunately, in any um, civilised democratic society, you need laws in place that punish wrongdoing. But you also, right. need, you also need a system that understands discretion and understands uh, compassion and alternative means of um, resolving these issues. So that the ability to prosecute is the last step or the last option taken when all others have been exhausted. And so, you know, as an example, you're, you're one of standing up in a crowded theatre and yelling fire. Um, that doesn't have to be covered by hate speech. That's already covered under the um, Summary Offences Act and covered by the Crimes Act. There you for, go. Uh, yep. Offences of that type. So, uh, but then there's the discretion as to how you deal with the situation and whether that person faces charges. Now, that person may have um, any number of social issues that they're struggling with that need to be considered as well. So that arrest, the ability to arrest and charge has got to be something used very carefully. I, I knew it in the police, and I know police deal with that now, where that's got to be the last option taken, and there are many, many options that you have before that. There will always be, unfortunately, people in our society who hate people in our society who have prejudices that they want to impose on others, um, and not just our society, we see it all over the world. So we do have to have that legislation, but we also need to have a society that understands right and wrong and understand, and, and is, has the ability to teach and educate and inform people properly of what they can and can't do in the public arena. The biggest issue we have uh, in this regard is social media and yeah. the keyboard warriors and the, the un- um, the unidentified people who can just put stuff into public discourse that can be hugely concerning. So, um, look, countries all around the world are grappling with that. Do we want a, a, a legal system with a global ability? Because, you know, we, we can't even keep um, people's names out of the media. If it's got a court order suppressing their name, we still can't keep the rest of the world from hearing it. Right. So, you know, there's a whole lot of steps that we need to think our way through because dealing with this hate speech is not just about putting a piece of legislation in place because it, it, it creates fences that are often very difficult to jump. Yeah. What, uh, is there any, any, uh, any way people can help you right now working on your campaign? Where would people go to support you? Yeah, look, I've kept my uh, website up, my Facebook page rather. Um, I can't call myself a candidate for Christchurch Central, even though I'm still on the party list. Um, but you can get me through Facebook. Uh, it's Dale Stevens uh, NZ or Dale Stevens Fit for Christchurch. I really appreciate your time, Dale. Um, thank you very much for coming on the show. 
Thank you so much, John. It's been a, a, a very interesting conversation. Narere ki nga tanga takatoa e fakaronga ki tena i korero tena tata katoa. So thank you to everybody. Um, great having the session, and we'll talk again. Excellent. Thanks, Dale. Have a good night. Kia ora. Kia ora.